and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my two co-hosts, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi. Hi, Kate. Hi. I'm happy, kind of, I mean, it happy is new a new year. year, but is it happy? No. Not yet. Not, well, <laughs> it, indeed it isn't. Something to cheer us up on this show. Today we have Hilton Owls. People will know him as a writer for The New Yorker, as their former theater critic and an artist. And now he is a playwright. And this is, we're talking about a play that he put on in workshop here at LAX Art in Los Angeles called Lives of the Performers. That was really amazing. And I loved seeing. And I mean, a dream for me because I'm such a Hilton Owls fangirl. Dea, what did you think? I think this gave me a very good excuse to read the book White Girls, which I've had on the sh- my shelf for a very long time and hadn't actually read, oh, um, but wow. did, did before our interview with Hilton. So, so that was lucky, I thought, for me, because otherwise I might have lived my whole life without reading that excellent book. But the play's interesting. It's about an actress who was in Robert Wilson's avant-garde theater back in the 60s and the 70s, um, an African-American woman named... Cheryl, uh, Cheryl Sutton. Sutton. So that this was not a woman I knew anything about, though I was familiar, am familiar with Robert Wilson's work. Because you worked for Robert Wilson. I did work for Robert Come Wilson. Clean. I did, yeah. Mm. Full disclosure, I did work for Robert Wilson one summer oh. many years ago. He absolutely has no idea who I am and will <laughs> never know, um, though we, we met. <laughs> but I'm an admirer of his work. So it was interesting to hear Hilton's discussion of the history of the avant-garde as it relates to race in particular mm-hmm. and as it relates to the actors who who were part of that movement but we don't really talk about very much because you know usually the main focus is a man like Robert Wilson who is the director so it was a very interesting conversation so Eric you weren't there with us for, uh, to talk to Hilton um, you were there in spirit but you are Always, here today yeah. <laughs> Um, But yeah, I am here today. And actually, what I want to talk to you guys about before we jump into the interview, which I'm as excited as our listeners are to hear, is to talk a little bit about the Golden Globes. Um, That's what you're here for. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) That's the reason I showed up. Um, So I think for me, I'll kick it off by just saying that it's like for me, watching the Golden Globes not only reinforced for me what I have come to see is the truth that last year was just a kind of meh year for movies, but also reinforce that like, I don't know about these award shows, you guys. It's like they were just like everything felt so flat. And I'm not the only person that has noticed that. Um, It was definitely other critics and, and viewers were saying the same thing on Twitter when I was watching at a friend's house in West Hollywood on Sunday night is that like the fashions were like, yeah, like there was really nothing. Mm. A lot of sparkle, but when isn't there? And also, Gwyneth wasn't wearing. I like that. Kate Blanchett's dress. Oh, me too. That was that's true. Beautiful. Yeah, there were some standouts, I but lo- do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, did you wake up the next morning and be like, I can't wait to talk about like the looks? No. Do you ever wake up I that way? Say, <laughs> that's not usually the way I wake up, but I did. I definitely. I I watched it with some girlfriends because mm. we were just at a bar where it happened to be on, and there was a lot of like plastic surgery. I mean, I guess that's pretty typical for sure, yeah. <laughs> any Hollywood. Uh, but I was saying uh, there was a lot. There was some like very intense breasts. 
Yes. Um, uh, uh, like Patricia Arquette. That was amazing. Yes. But I, I liked hers. I, Patricia Arquette to me was like a golden beacon in the whole night. I loved her glasses that she was wearing. I loved the way <laughs> she had her cleavage bared and um, not in a way that was kind of like in line with her whole attitude, just so like, you know, breasts out, just like truth yeah. out, you yeah. know, this is who I am. Um, I She was amazing. <laughs> Salma Hayek was the other person who's, you know, that's where yes. I yes. was uh, looking at. But uh, I, I also think the award shows, I mean, like, have you ever gone to just an award dinner? You know, that's not yeah, full of famous people. Yeah. It's not like, they're not usually that great It's anyways. not exciting. No. That's true. Yeah. So. But it's also the speeches were like, there's something about this year that I, fa- and it probably is always this way if I rewound the tape and watched the, the speeches from years before. But it's like, it felt a little out of touch in a way that like, especially maybe at this pressing moment, it felt like Hollywood celebrating Hollywood, which it always does. But for me, a signal moment was Joaquin Phoenix in that insane and rambling speech that felt like somebody, please get the cane and take him off the stage. He then says he ends up with what? You know, maybe some of us can commit to not taking private jets to Palm Springs. I mean, that's I can what, certainly commit to that. That's what I said. I that was my know if he was that. talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, but that's what I mean by it. It just felt like a little out of touch. Also, Ricky Gervais was terrible. Okay, that's actually my hot take. Yeah, okay. My right. hot take is that I actually didn't think he was that bad. I understand that... Was he good, though? No. There you go. No, okay. but I'm not sure that that's the standard. I don't know if the standard is a good show. Um, Or with a good host. I'm not even sure what that looks like. I kind of liked this, his MO about, I mean, one, I liked him discussing the sort of like the elephants in the room, like Amazon and Apple. Oh, yes, that was a great moment. Like that was, that was actually, I mean, I don't know, that felt right to me. That seemed like a not a bad thing to, to remind everybody of before they went on the stage and like gave their spiel. And I kind of think it's kind of funny to be so over it. Yes. Like, it, it, I thought that was kind of funny. It's very unpleasant. I can't say it was pleasant to watch. And it was certainly painful at times. But, I, you know, I, I there was something about, like, the weird, like, confrontational mm-hmm. tone that he set that I was like, I don't know, it does, doesn't seem wrong to me. Well, he, he also makes you aware of the formality of yeah. it, the emptiness yes. of it. Yeah. It's kind of like, you you know, he's trying to get through his lines. He's so obviously reading off the teleprompter. I, I like the yeah. Golden Globes because it does seem like people are trying just a little bit less than <laughs> another award show. It's and so they're, yeah. So it's kind of, right, so it actually has this more like real industry feel where you can imagine like sitting in the room where you can imagine like being bored. I mean, that it's not so like magical, windswept Hollywood. It's more just like, oh, these people are real people who go to these things where they like eat the dinner and they get bored and it's long and and you can just see. And like, I like how the seating, like the awkwardness of people really having to walk through the tables to get on the stage. I think in that way, it's more of a window onto like a real space and a real existence of Hollywood, maybe more than other shows. So I mm. kind of enjoyed that about it too. And 
I don't yeah. know. There's something there's something like about how unhinged it is that is really appealing to me. <laughs> and and just so watching people So you were people, there for the hot mess of it all. Oh yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. And I, I way prefer that than some overproduced unless it's going to really get to a magical level of um production what's going to blow sure. my mind. Okay. I'd rather okay. see something where I, I can it. tell like how the parts are moving than have those try to be obfuscated and just you know not be clued into what's happening. So I I, I enjoyed it for that reason and I kind of like the political... I didn't think Walking Phoenix's speech was that bad. I didn't hear it. I felt Oh, asleep. you didn't hear it? Okay. I, I, I just didn't you feel... Okay, well, he we're not going to push the say, point, but it's like he was... trying to say something. Well, he was trying to say something. I don't know if... Did we ever get that? He was trying to say, you know what? We are going to have to make our personal sacrifices as well. Try to be a better person. It was pretty pompous and he... Sure, but, okay. See, and, and, yeah. And, and, and obviously not very politically aware in a lot of sense, like... It's not about the actors not taking their private jets to Palm Springs. Right. It's probably more important to vote and change the structure of government. But I understood what he was trying to say. Take some personal responsibility in this. And hey, Hollywood, like, be better. I get it. I right. get it. Be, right. be best, as, as Trump would say. Were there any surprises for you guys in this evening? I truly recall none of it. <laughs> 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 it was like I was there. I I did honestly fall asleep prior to Joaquin Phoenix. I have no idea when he went on stage. It was like my brain wasn't present. Okay, so I will say that my surprises were, I was very happily surprised that Renee Zellweger won for her portrayal of Judy Garland and Judy. Both because like, I didn't know that that film was going to get that much attention despite the kind of star power of both Zellweger's return and also of the perennial appeal of Judy Garland amongst a certain subset of Hollywood or major set of Hollywood being gay people. But I was also very happy that they gave an award to Aquafina for The Farewell, which was one of my favorite films from last year, and she totally deserved it. I was surprised that Taryn Egerton, who is beautiful to look at, uh, did a good job in Rocket Man. But was that better than Antonio Banderas's performance in Pain and Glory, which I just saw this past weekend and could not stop talking about? I don't know. And also, I think we were probably the only ones surprised that Olivia Coleman won. She seemed surprised, but I think that was shared by only a party of one because her performance in The Crown was incredible. This is, doesn't really have to do with the Golden Globes, but the day of the Golden Globes, I was driving around Westwood and I looked at this poster of uh, Robert Downey Jr. And then I remembered, oh yeah, he's totally conservative. And then my husband didn't believe me, so I started searching it on Google and I did find this list of like 50 conservative people in Hollywood. And yes, Robert Downey Jr. is on there. And then I... Really? and Yeah. And then Adam Sandler. People know that. That's pretty common. Yeah, common knowledge. Yeah. I guess he performed at the 2004 Republican Convention. Adam Sandler? That I did yeah. not know. Mm-hmm. And Oof. also... His friend from uh, Saturday Night Live, Rob Schneider. Anyways, there was this whole list, and that was surprising to me. And then I remembered a couple of years ago, maybe it was at the Oscars or the Golden Globes, when Meryl Streep like made this beautiful speech about you know how we all had to band together and Trump, and mm-hmm. and they cut to like Vince Vaughn and one other guy just looking so pissed off, <laughs> you know. And I was like, oh yeah, they're they're totally conservative. They're like they're probably. Trump heads and they hate what she's saying. So that's something that I think that people kind of forget is that there actually are like yes. plenty of conservatives in Hollywood and that maybe like there's tension in the room that it's not like everyone's just, you know, unified. Well, I think we should take our jets to Palm Springs okay. one last time at least. <laughs> um, our separate jets and we'll just meet there. Great. And let's get to the Hilton All Show. 
Hilton Alls is the former chief theater critic at The New Yorker. He's currently a staff writer at The New Yorker, and he's been a staff writer there since 1994. He has received a Guggenheim Fellowship for Creative Writing and the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism in 2017. He is the author of the critically acclaimed collection of essays, White Girls, and a winner of the Lambda Literary Award in 2014. He's also a professor at Columbia University. He is all of these things as well as an artist, a photographer, and a curator. His latest project is called Lives of the Performers, which is a play in progress. It was recently presented and workshopped on the West Coast at LAX Art. The play is loosely based on Cheryl Sutton, an actor in the company of playwright and play director Robert Wilson, who starred in many of Wilson's greatest works. Hilton Alls, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Hilton, I wanted to start off by asking about Cheryl and how you Mm -hmm. came to her as a subject for this play. I take it that you've been aware of her work since you were very young, and I'm just curious why, after all this time, you decided to make something about her life. Yes, I have always loved, since I was, I guess, in college, when I first heard of Robert Wilson's work, this recording of... Einstein on the Beach, which included the original cast, Lucinda Childs and Cheryl Sutton. And I was so taken by her voice, her ability to convey through Christopher Knowles' words, which weren't necessarily language to be understood, but to be felt. I just loved how she conveyed things and what she said. And then when the album was a part of my consciousness a great deal. I felt peculiarly close to her aesthetic, which was very solid, and also I was very drawn to how she looked visually in the work. She was the only black figure you know, that I can think of in the avant-garde at that time in New York in the 1970s. And I was sort of amazed by Wilson's ability to use race without making it agitprop, but to make it part of the story and to make Cheryl's difference part of the story. And so I adored what he did with her, and I was able to eventually meet her. I'm very dogged in my pursuit. And eventually I was able to talk to her about the ways in which her life as a performer with Robert Wilson influenced him and influenced her. Was she what you expected when you met her? Yeah, she was very smart, very, I think, also just intellectually curious and willing to really sort of examine what her role in that particular history had been. She also had a great sense of humor about the past and about the ways in which she was, you know, a part of his imagination. I always appreciate that that's kind of interesting thing when a performer can step outside of their role and see how they are part of the narrative. But the thing is, is that, of course, that Rob Wilson, he didn't make work that was standard in any way. And so her ability to see the emotional connection between the two, between herself and Wilson, was kind of paramount in terms of, if you want to call it, the underlying text of her work that she knew that he was a person who was giving shape to some things that were internal for her and other things that were 
important and also part of his biography. Mm -hmm. So there was this kind of overlapping consciousness between the two of them. I loved the way that was exhibited and melded and exhibited. Mm -hmm. And there were things, of course, other than Einstein and Beach. I think they worked together for a long time, about a decade or more. So there was a lot that went on between them in terms of thinking and believing and also understanding how work coalesced, how performance was a kind of, I think, exhibition of thinking. You know, it wasn't about showing off. It was about the physical manifestation of thinking. It's so interesting that, you know, the way the play is staged, there are two actresses and they're separated into two spheres at times and they play off each other and speak to each other. And it's really hard to tell as I was watching it exactly what their relationship is. And of course, I took it to be more of an actress and her role at times. But the mm -hmm. play also incorporates the story of these twins, June and Jennifer Gibbons. I hadn't understood that possibly Wilson could have been kind of in there as well. As yeah. Another well, double. moment where she, first of all, it's just Cheryl talking to herself. And then after that, there are moments in which she impersonates Wilson. So that one section where she talks about Waco, Texas, that's Wilson. He's only in that one little monologue. But these are basically the reason to split it off and not make it a monologue is you want to have a little trauma. So you can only have that really if, if someone is in, in opposition to themselves. And that has to be physically manifested. And so it's really Cheryl 1 and Cheryl 2. And she's really in conversation with herself about her own history. So for listeners who might not be aware of Robert Wilson or his work, would you tell us a little bit? I mean, he's an avant-garde producer of theater artist and a very prominent one at that. Would you tell us a little bit about, well, you discovered his work through Einstein and the Beach, is that right? Well, actually, interestingly, there was a production of Deaf Man Clance. He'd done a film of it, mm -hmm. and I saw that on Channel 13, and that was the first time that I ever saw Cheryl. And then there was, I can't remember any specific moment, but the thing that I responded to in his work was his relationship to time. So he has this moment in the play where he talks about being taught how to speak more slowly. He worked with children who had difficulty paying attention. And one way to pay attention, of course, is to slow things down. So he was a big advocate of taking your time. And one of the things that Cheryl said, and she says in the play, is his work gave me so much time to think. And I think that one of the things that we're trying to do in the piece is talk about that process, you know, when an artist looks at himself or herself, what do they see? And Cheryl saw a lot of different things, I think, you know, or she represents a lot of different things, racially and sexually, and a kind of avant-gardeism that doesn't exist anymore, you know? How so? Why well, do you think I it mean, doesn't exist? Well, I mean, you know, it's hard for people like Robert Wilson to make work in America. They're not subsidized. They have to, in order to make a living, and that's what he does. When these pieces were made, this is in New York in the 1970s, there wasn't a large audience of it, but could you imagine somebody taking Einstein on the Beach to the Met these days? No, I mean, it, you know, it would probably be possible. A lot of stuff is really, unfortunately, dictated by marketing. Maybe the kind of more marginal role of the avant-garde is part of this, but at the end of the play, there's this moment where we hear the raw audio of you interviewing Cheryl, and 
you guys are having a very charming conversation and there's a warmth between you and she's saying that no one ever asked her about herself, that they come to her and ask her about Wilson's work, but no one had ever asked her about her. And I guess it's surprising if her role as an African-American in Robert Wilson's work was so conspicuous and she was one of the only members of the avant-garde who was black. I'm really surprised by that. But do you know why that is, that people hadn't taken more of an academic, at least, interest in her experience? Unfortunately, I think that the prevailing instinct in studying the avant-garde remains fairly relegated to people like Elizabeth LeCompte, Trisha Brown. I mean, people who are not known for the diversity of their cast. Mm-hmm. I think you have to start there. And these are the people who get museum attention, which is really where so much of the power lies. If you get that kind of attention, then you're able to have historical significance. And Bob hasn't gotten that kind of attention. I think long overdue would be a show of the kind of work that he was doing in the 70s. I did at the ICA Philadelphia small show about Christopher Knowles, who wrote a lot of the texts for his... For Einstein and the Beach, for instance. The Mr. Bojangles speech was by Knowles. And I feel that Bob hasn't really had that kind of museum attention because they wouldn't know what to make of that work past a certain time period. And again, unfortunately, the art world is defined by statishness. So if there's going to be a, you know, an Yvonne Reiner, which is yet another exhibition about the Judson Dance world, he's not in those worlds, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of similar to the ways in which Twilight Art hasn't been picked up by the museum world. I think even before she started to do Broadway and all of that stuff, she was doing pretty radical work about the body as part of Judson Church, but then she left. So I think if you didn't stay in that very particular white ghetto, you were not considered serious, mm-hmm. you know? You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Hilton Alls. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have film critic Jay Hoberman in the studio with us today. Jim was the film critic for The Village Voice for 30 years. His latest book is called Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. And he is here to tell us about his best film of 2019. Not the one he made, the one he thinks (laughs) is the best movie of 2019. Jim, what movie are you going to talk about? Well... I would say there are American movies and there are and there are foreign movies, but mm-hmm. I will mention uh, an American movie first. And I should say that I don't see everything anymore. I'm a I'm a recovering film critic, okay. so I would say this was my favorite movie. It's the best. Okay, I mean, but uh, it's your favorite it's, uh, movie. My favorite movie, and that is uh, Charlie Says by Mary Harron, which is a relatively low budget movie. It got a you know a, a small dist- uh, release, and it's about the Manson family. And it takes the point of view of uh, three of the Manson girls when they're in prison. And it sort of moves back and forth between the the prison and the Spawn movie ranch, you know. And um, the key character is a woman who 
is, I don't know if she's exactly a social worker or a graduate student. She's older, and she teaches in the prison, and she gets interested in these inmates. They've got their own wing, and uh, uh, she begins talking to them, and they're completely delusional. They've, they've mm-hmm. been in prison for a couple of years already, and they're just living inside this shared fantasy. And she really tries to um, dispel that. She, she goes to work on that. She starts off by coming in with copies of Sisterhood is Powerful. And she discovers already the way they, they weren't allowed to read any books other than the uh, Bible. You know, Charlie mm-hmm. says, Charlie this, Charlie that. And the movie is how she, in some ways, gets them out of their trance, but not entirely. And she also realizes that, and this is like, in a way, one of the most poignant things in the movie. She says to her supervisor, she says, you know, if, if I break through to them, they're going to be, left with the, with the horror of what they of what they did. I mean they they're like defending themselves against it. And what is that going to do? She's really has a um, uh, she's torn. Anyway, you know, I must say that I did enjoy uh, uh, Tarantino's film. I really did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like everything that he that he does, but I did like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even though there are plenty of things in it to quarrel with. And it is fascinating that there are these two movies out simultaneously about the Manson family. And it's the 50th anniversary and so on. But I think that Mary Harron's movie is, in this case, much deeper and also has much more to do with the present moment. I mean, you can't not think about what's going on now, about, about you know, the fact that Manson was a kind of demagogue who cast the spell, who played on the, the feelings of, of insecurity and even worthlessness mm-hmm. uh, among, you know, his, his, his followers and that he knew how to manipulate them and, and, and so on. And that it made this world for them to live in. And so I, I, that's something that I think that uh, we're all thinking about all the time now. Yeah. Unfortunately, that sounds true. Would you tell us the title of the film again and the director? The film is Charlie Says, and the director is Mary Harron. And I should mention that the writer, uh, Guinevere Turner, also I think had a lot to uh, to do with it. And they've worked mm-hmm. together on other on other films. That sounds great. That was Jay Hoberman's favorite movie of 2019. Jay Hoberman is a film critic, or is a recovering film critic. Um, his latest book doesn't speak that that well for his recovery, considering that it's it's mostly film criticism. <laughs> but um, it's called "Make My Day: Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan." Thank you, Jim. Oh, a pleasure. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Hilton Alls. I worked with Robert Wilson for a little while at the Watermill Center, and, and he does have... Oh, God, are you still exhausted? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been, t- it's been 10 years, and I, I am still exhausted. So he, there is, I mean, there is a certain community around him that is, that is extremely supportive even if it isn't the museum community. I think that, um, isn't that mostly like rich ladies who can help him kind of thing? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's mostly rich ladies and like the, the ex-wives of Saudi princes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, I mean, that's what I was saying, that at least one should do a show about the first 10 years of his work, mm. which is vital and important um, in that way. I just have no idea how can see yet another exhibition about the Judson Church, or yet another celebration 
ex-person, there were many other people besides Nurse Cunningham, mm-hmm. Trisha Brown, and, you know, the Judson Church people. There were many different kinds of choreography and, and theater, and it's a very, very limited perspective. So if Cheryl, by virtue of being with Bob, wasn't or hasn't been really celebrated, then it would really be because, you know, she wasn't in a segregated world. Bob desegregated the avant-garde. That's really super important. Um, he really did do that profound thing in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. You feel like, just to, just to repeat that, you feel like he helped in some way desegregate a segregated avant-garde. Uh, absolutely. No question about it. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask... I don't even oh, know. Did, did Cunningham ever have a black dancer? Donald Byrd, maybe? I have no idea. I mean, it it seems... Pre- the work seems predominantly How about, um, white. Rashawn... I don't know these people's last name, but there there's a pair that I think danced later, but mm. may not not in the beginning. That yeah. was it was a favorite. super... I mean, tr- take it from me, it was a super white world. Yeah. 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 And so I wondered, you know, how lonely or how connected Cheryl felt and you know that's really what the piece is and so I split her in two and it's it's about you know Cheryl talking to herself Hmm. and maybe I should say that more up front in the text but I also felt that you know why can't we work a little bit in theater why does the premise have to be known within three minutes and then solved I wanted Ron and Cheryl to be in the mystery of themselves you know Hmm. Yeah, it also it also occurs to me that by um, splitting her in two, you you give her company, right? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Not, she... I mean, it's it probably uh, there were some issues with that production, but there is conversation when she says, "You know, walk away from me. I'm so lonely without you." Mm-hmm. I wonder so. what what do you think about the avant? I mean, I, the avant garde has always struck me as as a predominantly segregated world. What does it look like to you now? It looks the same. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, you know, the occasional person of color, but the concerns are really the same, which is that they're performing for themselves and other people like themselves. It's not so much an extension of, or, or it's not the act of reaching out into the world. It's the act of um, looking for yourself or looking for peers mm-hmm. who are you. You know, they're not looking for stories that are not Mm self-reflective in some way or reflective of that group, that small group of people. I I wanted to ask about you have written this amazing collection, White Girls, and then you also do kind of more conventional profiles. I mean, and there were some more conventional profiles in White Girls as well. But recently you, you said that of those profiles that you've written, that you would approach them differently. And, you know, in order to write anything profile-driven, you said to The Guardian, I would become the person, and then I would analyze the person from within. And just in terms of, you know, this play doesn't seem that far away from some of the more personal pieces in White Girls. But I wondered if you could talk about that kind of shift and shifting away from maybe more kind of conventional modes of journalism to a more fictive, um, autobiographical, lyrical, you know, although those modes have always been in your writing, it's like, it seems like you're just giving yourself over to it more completely. And um, just talk about that trajectory for yourself. 
Well, I think that if you write for a magazine, you know, it's mediated because it's their magazine. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not. I mean, you're, it's your, as Janet Malcolm says, it's your piece, but it's their magazine, right? Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that happened to me was that I began to understand that if I wanted to write in a particular way or a different way, I, it would be on me, that I would have to find ways to do it and ways to publish it. Increasingly, I find myself the conventional... Are you thinking of things like Richard Pryor or I don't know which... Sure, but, yeah. Or even, I mean, uh, just um, leading with the, a voice and um, leading with like more abstract writing and emotion. Even the, the um, first... The first essay in um, White Girls, Truce Tropique, I think it's called, that is just so uh-huh. arresting, but is not, you know, that, I mean, it's more autobiographical writing, I guess, but it's not, it's nothing like a, a profile or anything you would read. Like oh, that. oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you guys know what this is like. You're working for, you work somewhere, mm-hmm. and there are the demands of the magazine, and there are the things that you want to do. You know, sometimes those things can converge, and sometimes they can't. And, I think if you are serious about developing and expanding and, and changing, you, you you basically do two jobs. You have your work as a very highly skilled magazine writer, and there, there's value in that, and then there's yourself. And so the split has to do with, you know, doing work that's mediated by editors, and then there's you, um, who does the work pleases you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, has it taken you a while to find, you know, the kind of work that does please you? Oh, no. I just always, I just never published it. It was, you know, I just wasn't particularly public with it before, but now it just feels sort of like fun to, mm-hmm. you know, put things out there. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I noticed about the play and that it sort of th- I'm thinking about now is the interest or peak, you know, you have this, du- the doubling, the twinning, uh-huh. And that it, you return to this theme a lot. You return to this theme in the play as well. I wonder, is this a sort of reaction to loneliness? This interest um, in, in I think, having I think a double? that's a great question, and I think it's true. Um, my analyst would give you a, star, a gold star. Um, <laughs> I would love to I talk to your analyst. Sure, <laughs> I think for sure it's a, it's a response to loneliness and that, that if you found the person that behaved the way you did, you wouldn't be upset and lonely because they'd be like you. But that's not real life, and that's not human possibility. We can share things with people. And, you know, this is a tragedy, right, for me or other people like that I'm describing in plays or, or stories is, you know, they can't reconcile themselves to the fact that other people are not down. Yeah. And that there's the split that happens is the rupture of closeness I think it's that twinning, you know, that I write about in the play is, is about the rupture of closeness and um, the rupture of intimacy. You know, you find someone that you can be close to, but then something always comes along to rupture, whether it be that they're sexually interested in other people or like that, you know? Mm-hmm. What is your reaction to that kind of rupture? Because when I read your work, you know, it's... It, when you're talking about it, it sounds tragic, right? That that one has to, but mm. one has to reconcile oneself with this tragedy. But then at the same time, there's 
and in Tristra Peak, there's this distance that you also acknowledge, right? That mm-hmm. that actually you're going to write about this, that part of your artistic mm-hmm. process is working through maybe this rupture. So mm-hmm. what do you, how do you feel about it? I feel that it's, I think it's, I don't think it's one thing. I think that it's for sure um, everything that you said plus more. Um, I think that there, for that person that wrote Tristratik is a different person mm. than I am now, and he felt more distance, but I think that I still feel sad about the rupture of intimacy when it occurs between me and another person. And But it's inevitable, and so what, what I'm getting back better at is understanding the, the inevitability. Mm. You spent so much time being a theater critic and and so many years seeing theater um now making your own productions and your own pieces i'm wondering mm. like how you take some of your tenets of what you think makes a great performance or if you if you have any of that in the back of your mind of of things that you kind of learned in that more critical vein and then putting them into production or if you just feel like there are certain things that make great performances and great theater. Well, you learn everything from watching. Um, and those years as a theater critic were profound because it was like going to the best graduate school mm-hmm. ever. I had to look at things and write about them all the time. And it taught me one essential thing, which is you know how not to bore people. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> if you, in that, uh, workshop that you saw, you know, there were lots of things that I learned about how to speed it up and make it clearer. And so every opportunity um, that I had to go to the theater, I use now in order to understand how a text needs to be cut or speeded up or elaborated on in order for it to be, in order for it to be a workable thing. So I learned a lot. And I measured how I myself felt in a theater when a play was maybe draggy or a performance was not good. But I learned that essentially what we're all interested in is stories of some kind. Mm -hmm. And also that there is a particular life to things in the theater and that the life has to have an an arc. Uh, It's almost sort of Aristotelian. And even though people don't like to think about Aristotle nowadays, it's still the same story of exposition and catharsis. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't I don't underestimate my time as a theater critic at all. I I really it was like going to a great graduate school for a long time, and then it was time to stop. Mm-hmm. Why did you agree to have the the? So we should say for for listeners, as we mentioned before. The play has been workshopped several times, but it will premiere... Oh, just twice. Oh, just twice. Oh, three, three times, yeah. Three All times. Right. But it will premiere, uh, you know, as a non-workshop play. Audiences can't uh, be involved on both coasts in 2020. Why did you... Yes. Why did you agree to that to that program? Why, why workshop? One of, the, one of the things that I found so profound about that experience at LAX Art was how vulnerable I felt. Mm. And I loved the vulnerability. And even if no one liked it at all, and I could tell people had different reactions to it, I still treasured and loved and was totally 
excited by the fact that I felt so vulnerable. And it's it's good. You can't be a writer and just be on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I really want to be a, a writer. It's so funny because as an editor, the thing I prize most is not yeah. feeling vulnerable. <laughs> That's why you're an editor. Yeah, no, it's yeah. a good thing. <laughs> You don't, you, yeah, you're, you're just so protected. You don't have to feel vulnerable. Yeah. The yeah. writer is the one. Thank you so much, Hilton. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, take care. Thank you. Thank you, and congratulations on the play. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 